The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. It is so uh, really good to be with you today and to have the privilege of spending these few days with you. I am here with my wife, Jenny. Uh, we traveled uh, down yesterday on the train, uh, which we decided to do instead of fly to enjoy the, uh, the route there along uh, Lake Ontario. And I'm very, very glad to be here. Thank you for the privilege of, uh, of this opportunity to share with you. I want to thank CMDS for the opportunity to come. Um, I am always terrified when I see this word, uh, especially as I had an extraction recently that the dentist described as one of his most difficult. <clears throat> uh, he said I had very hard bones, but that's normally good, he said, except when you're trying to pull out a molar. But I am British, so you can imagine not all of my teeth are in the shape that they should be. Um, but I also feel safe being here at the CMDS uh, uh, conference, you know, surrounded by doctors. I wonder what it would be like if you're down in the restaurant, if somebody is having cardiac failure and a uh, a waiter says, is there a doctor in the house? Two-thirds of the restaurant is going to get up and run to uh, somebody's aid. So it is uh, good to be here. And I want to open uh, my time with you by speaking about the comprehensive character of the Christian worldview as we respond to our culture today. Uh, and I want to read to you from uh, the book of Ephesians uh, to begin with. Ephesians uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I thought uh, long and hard about what I was going to say over these few days, and uh, I, I'm beginning in a general way this morning, and, and tomorrow and uh, uh, Sunday, I'm going to be speaking specifically about the area of health, salvation, and medicine. But I wanted to set it up uh, by beginning generally uh, in terms of God's calling for us in a failing culture. It has been said by uh, an American a social commentator about the church, he says this, with all its pomp, position, and property, 
Evangelical Christianity has never had less influence on our culture. American evangelicalism has been called privately engaging but socially irrelevant. America has degenerated from a once Christian nation into a materialistic, humanistic culture, subtly flavored with Eastern existential monism and a resurgent neo-paganism. And as you track with, uh, in fact, I had a phone call just this morning from uh, uh, Sun TV because I'm consistently being asked to go on the uh, arena, which is a sort of culture wars uh, television program. And there is almost something every other day around the country in the press from uh, legislators saying we can turn our homes into brothels uh, to uh, ju- uh, Supreme Court justices saying that we don't have the freedom to educate our children in our own homes in the way that we see fit or uh, withdrawing them from classes that we don't think are appropriate. One thing after another uh, hits the Christian community in Canada and in North America. And uh, that can leave us with a sense of uh, despondency, disappointment. Uh, I gather that Stephen Harper has already said that he's not interested in discussing the latest bill, the private member's bill, on when, uh, what a human life is, when human life truly begins in the house. These things are not encouraging, particularly encouraging for Christians. Uh, we can become quite discouraged. But I think the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians 1 helps us to put all of these things into their proper perspective. Ours is a time in which we do need a renewed vision of what it means to be God's people, what it means to be Christians in our vocation, what it means to be God's people in the life of the church. Now, Paul's concern in Ephesians chapter 1 is that Christians would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, having the eyes of their understanding enlightened. What does he want them to understand? What is it that Paul is concerned that they should know and understand? Well, first of all, he wants them, he says, to grasp their hope. And their hope concerns their calling, the hope of his calling. When Christians think about the Christian hope, they tend to think about heaven. What is the Christian hope? It's the eternal state. But actually, Paul here says, heaven is a part of it, the eternal state, which actually, of course, is the city of God, which comes down out of heaven into the earth, uh, not some ethereal, disembodied uh, zone of the never-never land. Uh, But Paul says, our hope right now concerns our calling in Jesus Christ for time and eternity. It is impossible to do anything in life without hope. You can't get out of bed without hope. Your doctors and uh, dentists, you have people coming into your surgeries all the time, not because they are necessarily sick in their body, but because they are despondent, downcast, sad, and they want to talk to someone. And I'm sure you hear plenty of hopeless cases or see hopeless cases. Uh, I don't know uh, whether this is true or not, but I have, I'm sure I've read somewhere in the past that uh, dentists in particular have a particularly difficult time of it psychologically, and have very, very high suicide rates. I don't know quite why that is. But treating people medically can be challenging because we see uh, many, many cases of hopelessness. Paul wants us to understand the hope of 
our calling in Jesus Christ for time and eternity. And then he says he wants us to understand the glorious riches of our inheritance. So the hope concerns our calling in Jesus Christ. He wants us to know that, to understand that. And he wants us to understand what are the riches of our inheritance which speaks of all the covenant joys and rewards and responsibilities that are ours now as a kingdom of priests. That's what the Bible says we are. We're going to be talking about that over the next few days. A kingdom of priests to God. And lastly, he wants us to understand something incredibly important. He says he wants us to understand the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. He wants us to understand our hope, which concerns our calling the inheritance which is ours in Christ, and the greatness of his power that is given to those of us who believe. And he's manifest this and demonstrated this in terms of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ to the seat of authority. And Paul says he is now far above all principality, all power, all might, all dominion, and every name that is named. In this age... This age, and in the age to come. And then he says something incredible. God has placed all things under his feet, and he has given him as head over all things to the church, to Christians, to the people of God. This Christ who is head over all things, whose name is above every name, whose authority, dominion, and power is above everything and everyone, has been given to God's people as the head of his people. Quite simply, head over all things to the church, the ecclesia, the called out people of God. Now, when we say the church, don't think now immediately about your local church building. The church, the ecclesia, the called-out congregation, uh, was actually a term taken from the uh, ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, and it concerned those who were being called out in terms of the public affairs of the city-state. So you had the Council of 500, uh, 10 Greek states, 50 representatives from each, and they came together as the ecclesia to deal with the public affairs of the kingdom. And God calls out his people, his church, the citizens of the kingdom, Christians in every place, in every time, in every land, in terms of the public affairs of the work of God in history. Our hope, then, Paul says, concerns our calling in Jesus Christ, our vocation in Jesus Christ. I hope you find your work rewarding in some way or another. I don't know what it means to be somebody stuck in a job that they despise or can't tolerate and just have to go to and grind it out day after day. I think that must be a very, very difficult existence. To have a vocation, to be, have a sense that what you are doing is in terms of the purposes of God, and Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, in other words, even in the mundane things of life, we are to do it all for the glory of God. All of it. There's nothing that is outside of Christ's way in which we are to live and act in terms of his rule and supremacy. 
And this riches of our inheritance that are found in Jesus Christ are actually found, Scripture tells us, ultimately in what Christ gives to us as our inheritance, which is the whole earth. Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth. Now, there are three land grants in the Bible that God attaches to his covenant always. The first land grant in the Bible was the Garden of Eden. God says, this is your place to cultivate, to turn creation into culture, to bring all things into subjection to me as my vice regents. Eden, well, our first parents rebelled against God, didn't they? They sinned against God, and they were turned out of, they were expelled from their land inheritance. What was the next inheritance in Scripture, a land grant? The next land grant, as Abraham was called out, was the promised land, was Canaan. And they were promised that if you obey me and keep my commandments and serve me here and are a model for the nations, you're gonna, this land will be yours. You'll retain it. And what happens is that Israel and Judah rebel against God, disobey God, and they were turned out of the land. And finally, Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of A.D. 70. But there's a third land grant in the Bible. Jesus gives it to us. It's the whole earth. Paul says in Romans 4, actually, that it's the entire cosmos. And Jesus says in the Great Commission, he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them or disciplining them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always to the end of the age. He tells us to go and baptize the nations in terms of the purposes of God. And he promises that as we obey him, Christ's rule, this authority, this power that is above every power and every dominion, will be brought into subjection to Jesus Christ. Now, this is the foundation of a biblical theology, that we are reminded that all things are under the authority of Jesus Christ and that we have a role in serving the purposes of God in our callings and vocations, in this great picture, this great story in history of Christ reconciling, of God reconciling all things to himself. That's the big picture. Our uh, evangelical forebears used to say that they were to assert the crown rights of King Jesus in every sphere of life. They were called Puritans. Now, Paul in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 18, he says this. He says of Christ, he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Well, that's quite a statement. What Paul is saying is there is not 
a square inch of the universe, there isn't an atom in the universe outside of the creative power, reign, and rule of God. And that is absolute, as we will discover tomorrow when I encounter your president, Dr. Riley, and diagnose the issue and give him the treatment, as it were. (coughs) I'm just teasing you, uh, Dr. Riley. But this is a very important point, that Christ claims every square inch of the universe for himself. There isn't a square inch of the universe that we can say, this is mine, and God has no place here. That this is outside of the reign and the rule of Christ. You see, when Christ claims everything, he's simply claiming his property rights. Paul says he created everything, he governs everything. In him all things consist, literally holds together. Everything is held together by the word of God. Now Paul says that's the truth about reality. And we have to live in terms of it. He's not merely the Lord of heaven. He's the Lord of all things and the creator of all things. And Paul says in in, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, we are to bring all things into captivity to Jesus Christ. Now that includes medicine. That includes all areas of health. That there is a way of being a Christian dentist, taking it slightly easier would be a good start. Um, There is a way of being a Christian doctor. There is a Christian way of thinking about medicine. We'll talk a little bit about that over these next couple of days. You see, what is reinforced to us by Paul is that as we go out as Christians into history, into our calling and vocation, we go there with a power from beyond history. That we're not doing it in our own strength, in our own wisdom, under our own power. This is not arrogance. This is not arrogant delusion. This is not presumption. Because Christ has already said who who he is, the creator, the sustainer, and governor of all things. And he sent us out with a commission. He sent us out with his word. And we don't go in our own power and authority. We go in his. We have, in and of ourselves, no power or authority, but this Christ has been given as head over all things to the church, to God's people, so that he might be preeminent in everything. And this power of God in history is released when we are faithful to our calling as his people. We are the people of the King of Kings. And we are called under God to be faithful in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our vocational lives, in our corporate lives, our church lives, in our various professions to the Word of God. And that whatever the circumstances may look like, no matter how great the opposition may seem to be, no matter how small we appear to be in our current cultural moment, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark chapter 4 about the nature of what we're doing. Mark chapter 4, verses 26, verse, beginning at verse 26 through 34. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. 
He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle, puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. You may think, well, I'm just sowing a tiny bit of seed here. How how can these things be? How will there be the increase of his government and of his peace, of which there shall be no end? How? How shall the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? Jesus says, one seed at a time. You don't know how it happens. But it does happen when we are faithful in sowing the seeds of the kingdom of God. Now, in our day, it's very difficult for us to accept this because of the rapid process of secularization and because we see the church in retreat and developing theologies of defeat in history. That our only hope in history, some say, is to escape from it, to be raptured out of it. The idea that we are to disciple the nations, to teach everything that Christ has commanded, to bring all things under the regency of Jesus Christ seems far-fetched, seems impossible. But this is what Jesus says about it. It starts like a mustard seed. Do you think the people in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, 120 of them, actually thought that in a few centuries the Roman Empire itself would be surrendering to Jesus Christ and that 1,500 years of Christianity would ensue? I don't think so. Now, I'm not going to discuss the the whys and wherefores and the merits of Constantinianism and all of those things. That's not my purpose here. But the point is, is that history was radically transformed by the preaching of the gospel. A small group of persecuted believers changed the world. Because of the power that is at work within us in history. Say, can the medical profession really be changed? Can laws really be changed? Can we really have biblical ethics in medicine? Can we really see medicine move from a materialistic premise to a biblical premise? Some would say it's impossible. All the socio-cultural change around us can make us feel insignificant, even irrelevant. You go to Toronto today, and certainly is the case here in uh, Montreal, that churches are closing everywhere. We see church buildings being turned into mosques and Hare Krishna centers and apartments. These are physical expressions of the decay of our faith, of the process of secularization. Just one very obvious physical example of what is taking place. But our forebears throughout the centuries, especially through the 17th and 19th century, fought secularization. They didn't surrender to it. They didn't accommodate themselves to the process and go with the flow. 
In fact, you could argue that 18th century England was, uh, was as dark a place as 21st century uh, Canada, perhaps more so. But then some faithful people took to the fields to preach the gospel. And then you had the uh, incredible social transformation of 18th century England and the greatest outpouring of Christian funding of every social health and welfare provision that the world has ever seen through the church. Again, no time to survey that for you. But the point is, is that earlier believers were schooled in and understood this robust, comprehensive, biblical world and life view, and they were educated in it, even if they were not educated people. They were trained and catechized. Most Christians today couldn't tell you what the Ten Commandments are in order. And yet, our Christian forebears understood that every vocation was a holy vocation and was to be, we were, they were to be carried out in terms of the purposes of God. They understood this calling. They understood the biblical mandate and worldview, Christ's purpose in history. They didn't simply surrender and go with the flow of their cultural context. Today, many evangelical believers, many Christians, see their faith as a personalist spare time philosophy that's akin to golf, yoga, or tennis. And sometimes we even market Christianity in that way. We present the Christian faith in that way, that it's another lifestyle choice. You've got, uh, I remember a series of adverts in London, England a few years ago, advertising a, a course on Christianity, and it said, great house, great family, great car, still feel empty. You need to add Jesus. And then we <clears throat> end up sharing this Jesus with our friends, and they say, that's great, wonderful. You do Jesus, I go to the gym. Glad it works for you. You, uh, you go to church, I feng shui my apartment. And uh, we begin to even see the faith and present the faith in terms of a lifestyle option, a choice among many choices, an appendage to life, an accoutrement, the salt and pepper of life, just to spice up. You need that spiritual side to life, not as the root, the center, the foundation, the starting point of all things. See, this was the great problem in how you presented the faith in the ancient world, because the Apostle John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. How do you explain that which is the beginning of all explanations? And that is where the Christian faith begins. With Christ, who is the Word the eternal word of God, who claims all things for himself. Yet today, Christians don't act that way, for the most part. Seven out of ten Christians, we're told in surveys, have no real association or affiliation with the life of the church throughout the week. If you added up all the tithes in North America amongst Christians, it adds up to about 2%, nowhere near 10 
We don't appear often as salt and light, but as irrelevant lamps hidden under the bed. And our social environment reflects the decay of the church. As goes the church, so goes the world. If we're salt and light, if we are the preservative, if we are shining light in a dark place, if the light is darkness, Jesus says, how great is the darkness? If we cease to be the preservative, what hope is there for the world? If you cease to be those directing medicine, what hope is there for medicine? There's a significant gap then that's opened up in terms of how we live and what we say when we look at abortion and fornication and divorce and any number of social ills, we see them at the same level amongst Christians as we see them in the world. And then we want to be credible in our presentation of the faith. Secularization is also indicative of our failure to truly answer the questions of our contemporaries in terms of faithful defense of the faith. Uh, We're told increasingly that defending the faith is irrelevant. It's not relevant to our culture. That uh, it's a pointless exercise. That it's a um, it's a practice from the past. It's a it's a hangover from the modern era, from modernity, and so on. We'll touch on some of this uh, tomorrow. Uh, well, I, I'm used to uh, debating atheists, uh, not Christian doctors. So I'm looking forward to being treated kindly tomorrow. Um, but. Uh, You know, the uh, last few debates that I've been involved with, at one of them, over 3,000 young people turned up. The fire marshal had to stop them coming in to the building to hear about who God is, whether there is a God, who he is, what's he like, and does he care about me. I think every major debate I've ever done has been packed to the gunnels. That's not a culture that's uninterested in whether they're is a real God who is interested in their lives and who can make a difference. We have to be ready to give a defense of our faith, all of us, in the sphere of medicine. What does it mean to give a defense of the faith in terms of a Christian perspective on medicine? You see, apologetics is not simply arguing about whether God exists and and, uh, answering the problem of pain. It is the defense of the Christian philosophy of life in every area. So there is an apologetic for the Christian family, for Christian business, let there be light, for for medicine, and so on. There is a way of approaching these things in terms of submission to Jesus Christ. And I think we're, therefore, we, we, the first thing that we can do is readjust ourselves as Christians into this understanding that the Christ who created, sustains, and governs all things is claiming all things for himself through us and is reconciling all things to himself. Brian Abshire, the, the, the um, American commentator I cited earlier, said this. He says, the Puritans did not see Christianity as a spare-time religious philosophy to help them cope with an angst-ridden world. To the contrary, their religious convictions brought suffering, persecution, imprisonment, and death. 
They integrated their doctrine with a consistent biblical worldview which offered practical application to every area of life. And then he asks a question. If God granted modern American evangelical Christians a new continent filled with wilderness, wild beasts, and numerous challenges, and then allowed us to settle and form a Christian nation there, we could not do what our spiritual forebears did. Most Christians would say that it couldn't be done. The Bible doesn't give us a blueprint for a Christian culture. Others would say it shouldn't be done. We're living in the last days, so why waste the limited resources? Therefore, it wouldn't be done because you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. Could we really do what our Christian forebears did with our faith? Is it possible that we have privatized, pietized, and spiritualized away our faith into a truncated vision of the Christian faith that doesn't bear resemblance to the faith of the church in history and the biblical faith given to us in God's Word? Does it bear resemblance to the faith that could bring about hymns like Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run? His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. Is it a faith that would establish the Canadian dominion on Psalm 72, verse 8? He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, the unconquerable power of God is at work in his church amongst Christian people when we are faithful because of what we've seen Paul teach us about who Jesus Christ really is. He's put all things under his feet. So we have to begin theologically. That's why I've started where I have today. We have to begin theologically, not pragmatically. Pragmatic decisions, purely pragmatic decisions, in the end lead to mistakes. We have to begin theologically with what God has said about himself. We walk by faith, not by sight. We take a long-range view. See, when um, uh, Christian people in Europe, North Americans love, love to go to Europe to see the big old churches and cathedrals. Do you know some of those cathedrals took decades to build? They were multi-generational projects. You might have been a craftsman working on a mosaic in the floor or, or one pane in a stained glass window. You may never have seen the work completed. And you might not see what we're talking about. You might not see a major recovery of our faith in our time. Just the seeds, just the early, just the sprout, just the leaf. But we have to do things in terms of the long-range view. How can we develop this vibrant faith that eschews this pietism and abstractionism? Well, one of the first things we can do is recognize that the calling of the church of God's people is not restricted to the Kariakon Doma, to the Kariakos, the building. A lot of Christians think, well, I'm not serving God unless I'm making tea after the service or functioning as an usher. Well, this is not the Christian view of reality. We are all God's ministers. We are all Christ's diaconate. We are a kingdom of priests 
unto God. A priest is a mediator. We are mediating the salvation, health and salvation to a sin-sick world. Now, I happen to be an elder, a presbyter. Now, I happen to function as a pastor. That's just one office in the church. You're a doctor. You're a priest. You're a deacon. You're one of God's ministers serving his purposes. You know, even the architecture of our churches teaches us this, of our old churches. What we used to build in Canada uh, was beautiful chapels and a schoolhouse. A beautiful chapel and a schoolhouse. Because we saw that in the Kariakom Doma, in the ecclesiastical building, we are being taught the word of God, we are being administered the sacraments, we're being cared for pastorally, and then we're sent out into the world. Now when we build a church, we build an airplane hangar. For a start, they're incredibly ugly. So we lack an aesthetic value that our forebears understood. Uh, Ugliness is not to the glory of God. Second of all, if you go to some churches in uh, Chicago, for example, um, you will find that you can pull up your car into church and there it will be washed for you and you can have your hair cut, get a burger in the church, whatever you need. Everything can be done at the building. Now, of course, what's happening in our modern cities is forcing us to rethink this. You know, you just can't acquire that kind of land anymore. But we understood, we used to understand that the ministry of the church is out there. It's not in the building. We need a building to to worship, sure. But that was done in homes for three centuries of the early church. The ministry of God's church is out there. It's in what you're doing. It's in how you serve God. Yes, Levitical ministry is important, teaching, but the priestly ministry is important. And this is what the early church took so seriously that they created Christian courts, Christian hospitals, Christian schools, everywhere. Everything was done in terms of the purposes of God in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to cite you some examples that will probably astonish some of you uh, over the next couple of days of what the church did from the earliest time. You know, Constantine came to power, and he said, all these bishops, you give justice to the people better than all of our judges, so here are the robes of a Roman magistrate. You know all the regalia that bishops wear? That, those are the robes of a Roman magistrate. That's where they come from. Not that I'm suggesting you wear them now, we should wear them now. I'm just saying that that's their origin, is that it was recognized that the only working, functional, viable portion of of the ancient world, as the Christian church grew and flourished, was the Christian people of God as salt and light. And as Rome collapsed, it looked to the church. And all health, medicine, education was provided by the church for 1,500 years. We're a long way from these things today. In the 4th century, when the Christians in Constantinople numbered just 100,000 50,000 of the poor were maintained. 3,000 clergy were supported. I beg your pardon, all of the clergy were supported, plus 3,000 widows and orphans when there were just 100,000 Christians. And they did it through the tithe. And then we went on to build hospitals 
pick up all the abandoned babies that were left by botched abortions in the ancient world and exposed to death and raise them in Christian homes and establish health, welfare, and education and even courts of arbitration on the basis of the Word of God. And it's only been in the last hundred years that we've stopped doing it. We are called out in our vocations as a government under God of the increase of his government and of his peace. There shall be no end. And in your vocation, despite what's happened to them uh, in our society and uh, government control of medicine and medicalization of society, you are still a minister and servant of Jesus Christ in your pr- in your profession, in terms of his purposes to bring about the healing of the nations. Are there any questions? Well, the first one is uh, what uh, Martin Luther said, that no greater mischief can happen to a Christian people than that they have the word of God taken away from them. Uh, that they have it taken away from them in its pure and clear form. And I would say that the, the primary problem is in the pulpit, uh, that uh, the church, in the end, uh, can only be as strong Christian people, can only be as engaged in their faith as they are taught and trained to be uh, and equipped to be through the life of the church. So I would say the first thing is, because we have seen uh, repeated compromises of the Word of God in numerous areas uh, and in different areas of our lives, it's meant that, in my experience, most Christians do want to live for Christ, but they've oftentimes not been really equipped to do so. And uh, they're hybrid Christians, therefore. They're part Christian, part humanist in their thinking. And until we become truly Christian in our thinking, that Christ is Lord in our thinking over every aspect of life, I don't think we can begin to see a recovery of our culture. So I would say the first problem is in the life of the church. Uh, and uh, when we, the second problem, I would say, is even when we are, uh, when Christians are faithful in terms of making right doctrinal affirmations, there is a difference between the formal authority of the Word of God and its material authority. Formal authority is how we understand it, the Bible to be. We can say, well, it's the word of God, it's inspired, it's infallible, and so forth. But the material authority of God's word is whether we're willing to apply it. God's word isn't just to be affirmed in abstract propositions, it's to be applied. And I don't think that, on the whole, the Christian church has been applying the word of God to every area of life. And that takes us being resourced and equipped and trained to do so. Um, And... uh, That's led to the weakness of the church, and as I said, I think it's a truism. One of the tendencies that we have is to point at the world and say, what a nasty world we're living in. Look at what's happening in our culture. Look at all these nasty people, Uh, and uh, when are they going to change? Rather than saying, what has the church done to surrender all of these areas? We have surrendered health, welfare, education, and the pulpit of the church over the past 100, 150 years, gradually and steadily to the point where we're moving towards uh, almost extinction, in these areas. And so uh, it's very difficult for us to whine about taxes and welfare and all of those things when we are not doing what God has called us to do and to be. So I would say, to my mind, that's, that's where the... Pr- we can't... 
The tendency for sociologists and commentators is to point to the Industrial Revolution or rationalism or some socio-cultural event or turning point as the problem. That's not the ultimate problem. Those are all interesting. They are only fruits of the problem. The fruit of the problem is in the church. Okay, do you have to use Christian vocabulary to discuss these things, or can we discuss important issues using <laughs> secular language and still be true to our calling? Um, uh, I, no, we don't have to use a Christian vocabulary uh, with everything. The, uh, I, I think the important thing is that we uh, invest uh, the meaning of our terms with Christian meaning. That's what's critical. We want, to be comprehens- we want to be comprehended. When Paul went to speak in the Areopagus in uh, Acts chapter 17 in, in Athens, uh, he used a, a Hellenic dialectical method in his discussion, and he didn't cite the, the prophets of the Old Testament explicitly. His content is Hebraic, but he doesn't cite uh, the, the prophets in the way that Peter is able to do in Acts chapter 2 and 4 when he's speaking to a Jewish audience. So, no, we don't have to use um, sort of religious uh, language or a Christian vocab. Uh, the critical thing is our meaning. And we d- so we do need to define our terms, and that is important. Clarity is very important. Lot words, when, when uh, a culture is being secularized, one of the things that happens is that words are first given a double meaning, and then the second meaning becomes dominant. Let me just give you one example. Uh, humanitarian. Humanitarianism. Most people today associate that, associate that with a very good thing. To be a humanitarian is to be kind, it's to be benevolent, it's to be concerned with the poor, with man's good, right? If you look in a dictionary, especially an older dictionary, you'll, define that, you'll find that the original meaning of the term is one who denies the supernatural, especially the deity of Christ. So the word was taken and adopted and then given a, a dual meaning. Somebody who denies the supernatural, but who is concerned for humanity. And so what that really means is now, if you're not a Christian and you deny the supernatural, you're a humanitarian. You really are concerned for man and his well-being. If you're a Christian, you're not. So the meaning of words is very important, but we don't have to use a religious set of terms in order to, to engage our culture. We need to be understood. So we should use terms that people can understand, but we need to give them a Christian meaning. Uh, it is certainly true that the, the, there is a shift of, in Christian uh, uh, influence and uh, dominance of numbers to the global south. And uh, I think this is very significant. Um, there are figures that can give you the precise numbers of where Christianity was 100 years ago. It was in the northern hemisphere, was where it was dominant. Now it's the southern hemisphere. And uh, they are sending missionaries to us. So I would say they don't view us as consigned to the dustbin of history. When we were a Christian people, or a more Christian people, we did not say, well, let's leave Africa and South America and, uh, 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 and the East to the dustbin of history, let them go their own way. And neither is the East now saying, or the South saying, we should leave the West to the dustbin of history. They are sending missionaries to us, and thank God for that. Thank God that we have uh, Korean and Chinese and African and South American missionaries coming to our cities. In effect, we have the grandchildren coming to correct their grandparents for our faithlessness and disobedience to the covenant of God. And uh, I rejoice in that fact. 
So no, our response is not to say, oh, well, now we don't have to be obedient to Christ. God's left us in the dustbin of history. Where does the Bible say that? Not at all. No, our task now is to rebuild. Uh, This is what God expects of his remnant wherever they are, wherever a faithful people, God always preserves for himself a remnant. And when there is judgment, and our culture is under judgment, I totally would accept that, that we've been handed over to some degree, I think, to a depraved mind. And uh, we are experiencing judgment, but when God's judgment is active, his salvation is also active. And he keeps and preserves for himself a people to be faithful who will rebuild in the context of the ruins. That was the ministry of Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra went in, he reminded the people of the word of God, he called them back to faithfulness to God's word, so that when Nehemiah said, who's up for the rebuilding project now, they said, we are. And that is our task now in our culture, with the help of our brothers and sisters from the global south, is to rebuild in terms of faithfulness to Christ. Jesus, with respect to this, the question of the, the future and the end times, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, when will you restore your kingdom to Israel? Is it now? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has set in his own authority. You go and be my witnesses. We should spend a lot less time uh, uh, in these uh, essentially resource-draining, time-wasting predictions about the future, reading books like Epicenter and Left Behind and all of that, and focus on what we're doing now in terms of faithfulness uh, to the kingdom of God. That's, our, that's what we should be doing. Uh, it's not our business. Jesus says, not even the sun knows. We don't know. We've got some twerp predicting the end of the world again. This you've probably read in the paper in, in, in June, June this year. This is not our concern. Our concern is to be Christ's witnesses faithfully in every area of life. There might be 500 years of history in front of us, a 1,000 years. Our task is to rebuild now. Okay, um, well, I'll touch on the... Somebody's asking about the church leavening pagan Roman society. Where can we read, read more about that? Um, uh, they did it by tithing. Um, there's a, so let me just answer that very quickly. Yes, uh, the tithe is God's tax. And uh, the reason the church today is that still just about tax-free, just, they want that from us, of course, but it's, it's because the church is God's embassy, You can't tax God's property. And uh, the church, uh, God says the earth is the the Lord's and everything in it. Because it belongs to him, he can tax it. And God's kingdom resource is the tithe. And that's how the church has always seen it throughout history. That's how the Hebrews saw it. That's how the church has seen it throughout history. The reason we can't do health, welfare, and education today is because we don't tithe. We don't have, and that's why Caesar is getting bigger and the church is getting smaller. Jesus says, if you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar for now, give to God what belongs to God, you won't have a problem with Caesar later on. We've got a major problem with Caesar right now, with statism, because we are not rendering to God what belongs to God. A study was done in the United States a few years ago that said, if every church in America looked after one welfare family, there would be no welfare state. And... Uh, If we want to recover the areas of ministry of the church of the living God in history, we have to first recover God's tax, which is the tithe. And the church has to start putting it to the use that God says it's supposed to be used for. Uh, Only a tenth of the tenth went to the priesthood for worship. The rest went to the Levites for education and welfare. And so we need to, this is a big area, but this is one of the things that the church did. And certainly I can mention some books in the next session that will will, uh, 
uh, take you back to how uh, this was done and how it was always done. I mean, the taxes we're now under are a very modern invention. Property taxes and income taxes that we now see, God's word allows for a small poll tax, a small head tax, but not the kind of taxation we see today. Uh, Property taxes is saying that to tax something is a claim to ownership. The state essentially claims the ownership of your property and increasingly your children and everything you have right now. Uh, In the the UK today, the state will take 40% of my inheritance. 40%. Now, that's theft. That's just state-sanctioned robbery. And it's deliberately designed to uh, impoverish, disenfranchise the family, and build a man-centered utopia. That's the, that's the dream. That's Babel. But God has his tax, and it is to fund these things. This is what God's... I believe all doctors and hospitals should be funded through the church. That's how they used to be funded. And he who pays the piper calls the tune. And one of the reasons we've lost our influence in these areas is because we no longer pay for them. So uh, uh, that's rather a long answer to the question of uh, tithing, that uh, this, is, um, this is one of the things the church did. It said, in a pagan world, surrounded by paganism, how can we be faithful to Christ? We'll do all of these things. And the pagan world stood in awe of the church. And multitudes of them flocked into it. Because health and salvation was declared and lived. Uh, here's just a few thoughts. Just, this, is just, this is not a straight jacket, just a few thoughts that may help you in your discussion. First of all, what, what is, spend some time defining the Christian hope. What is the Christian hope? What's its nature and character? Uh, what is the calling of the Christian in the world in terms of what we've heard this morning? How can we begin to be God's priesthood in uh, our vocations or and how can we sow the seeds of the kingdom as doctors and as dentists Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.